Good evening, everyone. Before we get started with tonight's episode, we have a very special giveaway planned for you. We're offering a chance to win a copy of Sina Palayo's new novel, Children of Chicago, which hits shelves on March 9th through Polis Books Agora. Or when you're listening to this, it'll already be out. All you have to do to enter is tag Inkheist, which is at Inkheist on Twitter, with episode 3. Dot 10 and the hashtag children of Chicago, all one word, and we will pick a random winner at the end of the week. Thanks and good luck. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Ink Heist. This is Laurel Hightower, and I am here today with my co-host Rich Duncan. Um, Shane could not make it today because we are recording in the afternoon and you know he's still sleeping. So um, we are joined today by Gemma Amor. Uh, she is the author of Cruel Works of Nature, Dear Laura, Girl on Fire, um, among a number of other works. She's also a voice actress, a podcaster, and an artist, and pretty much anything creative that you can do, you just kind of look over and Gemma's doing it. So how are you doing, Gemma? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Well, um, we're really thrilled to have you on. Um, you and I have spoken you know, quite a few times before and worked on some stuff before, but I'm really excited to get to interview you for this podcast. Um, do you want to do give us like kind of the new kid at school speech, a little bit of a rundown on what you got going on? <laughs> the name game is that the, I used to, I used to work in the corporate world and used to have to play the name game. And I was like, Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm Gemma, as um, Laurel pointed out, I am um, a, a kind of author and what well, kind of, I am an author um, I moonlight as an illustrator. Um, I am a voice actor every now and then, um, and a few other bits and pieces I'm, I'm kind of dabbling with. Um, and I've been kind of writing full time, I think, for maybe about two years now, just coming up to two and a half years. Um, I've been fortunate enough. Uh, I was Bram Stoker nominated last year, which was a big deal for me. And it's something that I, I sort of feel like I'm still quite shy and hesitant about talking about and then I have to have a strong word with myself and say no come on it's ridiculous I own your achievements and um I'm I'm probably what you call a professionally busy person <laughs> like to stay busy <laughs> I think you should introduce yourself with Bram Stoker nominated I, I think do, that I should do. that should yeah. be like your title ahead of Gemma I'm trying be... to like it's much easier online like all my profiles and all my bios and everything I've changed it and I remember changing it just after I got the nomination and it was a really amazing feeling and I still read it sometimes and sort of do a bit of a double take and it's quite it's quite nice and it's quite interesting as well seeing this year's round of nominees going through the same journey I went through last year some of them are kind of old hats at it they're, they're like it's another nomination what does it matter to me and then some some are kind of in the position I was in where we haven't really been doing it very long and it, it's all kind of hits you a bit like a freight train uh, out of the blue um I must say I was quite sad not to see you on there Laurel I think I think you are a damn fine writer I, I appreciate that I I was you know I and I appreciate what you have the way that you've been posting about it on social media, I think is a really good way to look at it. Um, I, I'm not going to say I wasn't disappointed when I saw the list, you know, but it, it also like, you have to look at it and you're like, Oh, I would have liked to be on there, but it's not like there's anyone I would have kicked off to make room for me, you know? Exactly. So it's, it's just not your year. And that's the, like, there is that th those award schemes, they run every year. There's more yeah. than one type. 
Um, I get a little bit annoyed, I think, when sometimes you see people and they're obviously reacting perhaps to their own disappointment or or they're trying to make people feel better, which I do understand. Um, and sort of the comments along the lines of, oh, well, awards don't matter anyway. And, you know, I don't really subscribe to that point of view, not not just because I'm kind of, I guess, been nominated myself, but it sort of undermines all the hard work that people went through to write those books that were award nominated. I do think they are important. I, I certainly think it's completely elevated my career in the last year. Things just changed so much as a result of that nomination. But I do think that you know not getting one isn't necessarily a judge of your writing it just it's just whichever book took that particular panel of readers and and jury members at that time collectively and I think there's so many factors and so many different things that go into it you know there's that's why it's good that those schemes run every year because you know there's always another year and I like that about it it's not like a one-shot thing and it's I guess it's the same with movie makers and the Oscars and things like that like Never mind, not this year, but next year. And I think that's like, you know, I submitted <laughs> yeah. a couple of things as well. And and I look back to what I submitted last year. And actually, last year wasn't my best writing year at all. The stuff I brought out was, you know, good and people like it, but it, it wasn't of a standard of Dear Laura. And I was disappointed when I saw the list and, and hadn't gone through. And then I thought, no, this is, you know, this is silly because I knew I wasn't. <laughs> so uh, there's another says- year. I think it's important, though, to be able to, like, uh, Sean Hamill has been putting some, I I like being able to address and saying, you know what, it's okay to feel disappointed. And I think one of the things he said that I really liked was he was like, there's always lots of work that should be on there, but isn't, but there's no work on there that is and shouldn't be. And because the last thing you would, you know, it's okay to look, you know, in yourself and say, oh, I'm disappointed, but, uh, it's good to turn it outside then and be, cause there were some names on the prelim ballot that I was just, and also on, on the, um, the, uh, where are we on final ballot now? Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, seeing some of that stuff, Cena, you know, Ross, yeah. um, uh, Sarah Tantlinger. I mean, there's just some, some great stuff on there and I'm so excited to see those. So in a way it's kind of nice cause you can just sort of sit back and, and be excited for everyone else and, and yeah. just kind of watch how it goes. I think that's the prevailing feeling I, I, I got this year was not disappointment for myself, but just ap- it was just a really happy day online it was a happy day for me and there's like this writing community like we're a small kind of group of people everybody knows everybody things get heated sometimes um Laurel and I have kind of messaged each other every now and then over (laughs) what's happening out in the wide world because I'm not the sort of person that will publicly tweet that often about something unless it's quite severe I think in nature just because I I'm not very good at that kind of thing I'm not I'm not good at taking sides I'm not particularly good I'm just not good and I always know that I'll end up saying something that will be me putting my foot in my mouth um and then kicking my own like intestines <laughs> for good measure. So I try and stay out of it but like that was a day when the nominations came out where I saw so many peers and so many friends um you know just sharing joy and and uh, an excitement at someone else's success and I, and I thought I was talking about this I've talked about this on numerous other podcasts like for me I actually find it incredibly motivating when other people succeed 
I, I love it because then I can visage myself in that position for one thing and think, oh, well, if, you know, there's if somebody can do it, then I can definitely do it. But also, I just think that, like, I don't know, I quite like um, gliding along in the afterglow of someone else's <laughs> success. It's kind of nice. <laughs> it's just a nice, positive, warm space. It's like a cat going next to a radiator. <laughs> That's me, like, just curling up next to someone else's success and like, oh. Um, because it's just, I love to see people succeed. And I like, I think I've always sought out good news stories above negative stuff. Um, so it, it was a good day for me in the community that day. And we've had a we've had a fair few humdingers. So it was nice to see people <laughs> celebrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, kind of on like uh, your your own nomination, one thing that I thought was cool and I was wondering if you could speak on it. And I I could be wrong in my assessment and that, you know, there hasn't been a lot of like. Um, totally self-published works on there um where because i i read that you not only you know wrote the story but you did the cover the formatting so it was like a very deep project for you where you mm. pretty much created everything about it and i was just wondering you know what was it like for you you know after doing all of that work and you know seeing kind of the success of dear laura not just making the stokers but you mm. know all the people who've probably reached out to you and said that you know they loved it yeah um I mean yeah it was intensely gratifying and it was I think one of the first moments where I thought because I haven't been doing this very long it's one of the first moments where I thought I'm not just kind of experimenting here and playing around this is now my job and I can do this and I can make this my career and I can make a living out of this like it's been it's been an interesting journey for the last couple of years it's it's definitely been a faster and more gratifying journey than I thought it would be I thought I'd be working away 10 years time and you know it, it just it was one of those moments where I, I felt like all the hard work was was paying off um way faster than <laughs> I anticipated I wasn't prepared at all and I think the reason I wasn't prepared is like the way I tend to work is I'm quite um I'm quite an impulsive person creatively and I'm quite um I think a bit like my kid that I was kind of talking about earlier, like I'm quite a high energy individual. And if I find an idea kind of takes root, I just want to make it and go with it and release it into the world as quickly as possible um, before I lose interest. I think I have quite a low boredom threshold um, and just I lose interest in things quite quickly. So Dear Laura, the idea for Dear Laura came along because I saw um, another competition on Amazon um it was a I can't remember the name of it but it was a publisher story and tag it and it entered you into this competition and I had in my mind that I wanted to write something that was perhaps competition worthy as the next kind of stage in my personal development I'd I'd gotten over the getting published hurdle I'd gotten over the kind of learning about self-publishing hurdle and I was now moving into the I would like to perhaps get some wider recognition for some of my stuff and write something that I'm genuinely very, very proud of, because it's not that I wasn't proud of my other stuff, but that was more writing for fun and writing to get into writing and, and learning the game and the craft. And I wanted to write something that I felt like super proud of. So I kind of I'd had this idea of in my mind of a, a woman walking through the woods as a starting point and I had no idea where I was going with that story at all but it just that was the idea that was the opening scene it was a woman it was raining she was walking through the forest and she was going somewhere 
and there was this kind of compass like thump thump thumping against her chest as she walked and that that idea I just I just ran with it and I, I actually wrote the whole book in like less than six weeks I think it was five weeks or something I just sat down and I mean it's only like 25 26,000 words it's not a lot of words and and then I'd, I'd started painting this kind of image of a hand just because I paint a lot when I'm when I need to create but I'm too tired to write I paint a lot anyway so it was just my hand I was just sat there one evening painting my hand and then I realized actually I could tie this into the story and save myself a bit of trouble and money with the book cover so it all kind of organically just came together very very quickly um and I hit publish as you can as a self-published person on Amazon which is the beauty of it is I've brought this book into the world and now I it can be in somebody else's hands in 48 hours which is just I still find that so exciting and so enticing and I did it um and it and the the response the was response I think because I had my other short story collection out first the response was so warm and so positive that I just then I think I snuck into the the last date for entering the stokers by like a day I just decided to take a punt on it and send it off not not thinking for a second you know because it's a self-published thing because I'd sort of turned it around quite quickly and I'd done my own cover I I thought that that kind of level of amateurness would immediately disqualify me from getting anywhere so it was an absolute shock when I made the first round um, I didn't even know the recommended reading list existed last year. I knew nothing about the Stokers whatsoever. Um, I just saw this thing and then just submitted. And and then it made the first ballot and then it made the final ballot. And I remember I was walking along when I got the email. I was I was picking up my child from childcare and I was walking home. And I fell off the curb into the road because <laughs> I was reading my email. I was like, what? Um, and I think my kid learned a really rude word when I, <laughs> I was like, exclaiming. And I was gobsmacked. But it was insanely gratifying as a self-published writer to be recognised in a by a, an award scheme that, that perhaps has favoured more traditional routes of publishing over the years. Mm-hmm. since It's well, been around since the 80s, isn't it? And... Um, but then I think back to I think one of the people that's influenced me the most are people like Keelan Patrick Burke and he's he's one of Stoker and he's a self-published kind of guru and does all his own cover work and you know and I I think this is what I mean by looking at other people's successes I think rather than getting envious of other people's success I tend to look at other people's success and then go how can I recreate that (laughs) what can I (laughs) do um you know and 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 so yeah I'm not sure if that answers your question but it was it was a nice feeling I felt good about being I think one of the only people on the list that year that was self-published and it didn't say self-published on the ballot I think it said independently published but I Mm -hmm. you know there's a stigma around self-publishing still that I hate it's it's an outdated and outmoded opinion on the quality of something based purely on the mechanics in which it's delivered and it doesn't take into consideration at all who is writing, what they're writing, what they're trying to say. Marginalised voices that have greater access to publishing routes because they don't have to jump through kind of prehistoric genre hoops to get there. And it just, I forget who it was. I think it was, uh, I forget who it was. I was on an interview with someone and they were saying self-publishing is like 
kind of like punk music you know it's like Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can take a bit of a stand you can talk about the stronger themes and the sterner stuff you can be more experimental with how you write and the style that you write and the way in which you write and like the cherry on the icing on the cake is if I want to publish a book next week I can do it like (laughs) providing I've written it but it's just magic (laughs) that you have that much control as a creative person um But I think traditionally that hasn't gone hand in hand with things like award recognition. So it it felt good to me to be recognised for my own hard work. Um, You know, and I'm sure there's lots of things that I could do to improve that book. I I get lots of criticisms that it's too short. It's too underdeveloped. That was a stylistic choice for me. Um, But, you know, and I, I am adapting it at the moment for audio and... Um, which is exciting and you know I'm changing a lot as I go through and adapt that and I keep thinking I could have written this so much better you always do like you get a a year away from a book and you reread it and you go god damn I could have written this better (laughs) (laughs) yeah we would never publish anything we would just wait a year and you know to see if we could (laughs) do it better and exactly exactly and I think that's where as a self-published person sometimes you do struggle you need an editor to step in and go no enough is enough this is good enough get you know stop being precious about it and and release it let it fly from the nest Um, because I think if it was down to me I would obsessively rewrite myself into oblivion Um, (laughs) yeah No, that no that that answered the uh the question perfectly and you know i really like what you said about you know self-publishing because i like you had said it offers people who you know traditionally might have had a difficult time getting their work out there um and i also liked you know how you said you had heard about like the punk music connection because that's one of my favorite quotes i think i've said it like 15 times on this show but yeah, more more to the point about, you know, self-publishing is so often you see people who kind of focus on the negatives of it, like, oh, you know, there's too much stuff flooding it and, you know, the quality isn't as good. But I think, you know, for me personally, like the way I look at it is I would rather deal with that kind of stuff if it meant that other writers who didn't have the opportunity to be heard but, you know, have these wonderful stories that it means that mm. they have an easier time reaching but it's, readers. I also think it's a bit of a myth, right? Like I could walk into a high school yeah. bookshop, not that I could at the moment because the world's on fire and everything's shut. But like it, I could, in theory, walk into a high street bookshop um, and pick up a book and it could still be shit, even if it was traditionally published. <laughs> yeah. yep. Like it's just it's totally subjective and it's totally dependent on. Uh, whether or not an agent thought it was good, whether or not the agent's connections thought it was good. And it's like, that's not to say, like, I I have to be careful with this because I I don't want to ever create the impression that I'm down on traditional publishing. I'm definitely not. And I I am kind of actively looking for representation. And of course, I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to make it to one of the big five as well because it would widen my audience and my reach and my opportunities. I'd be an idiot to not want that. But I do think that... I, I question I question the validity of the statement around quality these days because I, I mean particularly in our circles I mean the absolute wealth of material being published that is just stonkingly good and and mm-hmm. in my eyes much better than a lot of commercial fiction that you find on the shelves 
um, which can tend tend towards the formulaic and because it's so commercially driven. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, what do you want to be? Do you want to be somebody that ticks a load of boxes or do you want to be true to yourself and, and write the story that you want to write? And I think there is a, a middle ground. You know, and I think I, I'm definitely striving for that middle ground. I, I'd love to to think of myself in the future as somebody with perhaps a book with a big publisher, but also maintaining my own self-published portfolio so I can continue to explore an adventure um, and dip my toes into like screenwriting and all the rest of it. But like mm-hmm. you own your own writing journey. And I think that's the beauty of self-publishing is you owning your own creativity and and you can put yourself into your work so much more I think as a result which is something I do with all of my books and something that like readers of my stuff must be able to identify by now like (laughs) there's that theme there's that character again like they must have figured it out but who cares I can do what I like it's my stuff so (laughs) well it's funny because actually one of the things we were talking about before um we called you because Rich just finished Dear Laura Okay, um, cool. yeah. And I think I remember seeing somebody, I think it was this week that somebody like posted a review about like, okay, haunted houses, yada, yada, and then pigs and, you know, all, like listed all this other stuff. And it's like, that is, that's what we were talking about was so it's like you have such this own style, you know, where so it never, it doesn't ever seem like you're writing, you know, the same thing. It's more just that it's always going to take a different path than what you expect. That's you know? what I like to try if wherever possible, I like to take a trope. Um, and enjoy the trope and run with the trope but then take the trope in a completely different direction um, because I think tropes are valuable you know they they're kind of comforting to a lot of write a lot of readers as well as writers let's tell a ghost story let's tell a folk cult horror story let's let's do a stalker story but you can do so many things with those tropes um, and I love the idea of someone reading a book of mine and then going holy fuck what's what's this like, um which is I think what I tried to do with white pines a little bit more it was it was a bit more of a a journey through of, it was a bit more of an exploratory journey for me than dear Laura which was a very kind of straightforward story I knew exactly what I wanted to say and it was a very small cast of characters and very kind of limited locations sort of one or two settings um, just over a very long time frame whereas White Pines covers multiple years uh, but just all sorts of different themes and subjects and things like that and it's like if I can write it so that no two books are exactly the same I'm happy um, but I'm sure that's that's easy to say when you've only got like five or six books to your name and then when you get to like a hundred book territory or king levels then it's like you must you, you must be able to like you end up writing the same book just differently, if that makes sense. You can't avoid it, I don't think. Uh, well, if you're Stephen Graham Jones, I don't, I mean, <laughs> but yes, anything other than, other than that. But I think there's merit to that too, though, because there are, I mean, for all of us, I think it's true. We have authors that we greatly enjoy no matter what they write because of the authorial voice that we're getting even if, you know, the narrator is significantly different and the circumstances are maybe it's third person when it's usually first, like, you know that you're getting a a tone of voice that you enjoy with that, you know. I think that's important. I think that's that's about finding your voice there, right? That's 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 about finding your happy spot as a writer with a clear and strong voice that comes through in all of your work so that somebody can pick up your stuff and go, that's a Laurel Hightower book, you know, and like Hayley Piper's got 
very very good voice kind of yes she could pick up Haley story and okay this is a Haley story seen as the same <laughs> the um the Castro Violet is oh yes got a really distinctive <laughs> voice Gabino it's like the people that we you read their stuff and then you recognize them in it and that's yeah but that's the beauty of again this industry is that you can pour yourself into your work and that distinctiveness is prized and valued um in a way that it perhaps isn't out in the kind of big bad business world um and I love that I think I think I just I get so excited about the idea of creativity and how we all live out our creativity differently and and how that comes out in our work and I, I kind of I got to the point the other day where I was having one of these big existential moments where I was walking along and I was thinking about everything that's happened in the world over the last like 12 months it feels like 14 years and like thinking what would I have done with myself if I hadn't had this you know if I hadn't had this writing and this passion and this career and like how would I have survived I don't think I would have and I feel sorry for people that don't have a creative outlet. Like, what do you do with yourself? <laughs> what is life about? Like, okay, yeah, you get married and you have kids and you have a house and all that. But what? Yeah, there's other stuff, right, around that. That's 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 the point of why we're here, I think. Like, not to get too grandiose and carried away. <laughs> I do. I find myself wondering that, especially yeah, with with everybody being on lockdown. I'm like, what a, and what's everybody doing with their free time? And then I also sometimes ask myself the question of why everyone's house looks cleaner than mine. And I think those two things are definitely connected. <laughs> but also, like, who has any free time? I think that the different experiences you have in lockdown are entirely dependent on whether or not you have children. Um, I have had to kind of bite my tongue on a few people's posts where they've they've kind of been struggling with lockdown, but they, they don't have kids because their their experience is no less valid than mine. Um, but I, I have just been my first response is like, but you don't understand. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you can't go anywhere in your house without you're never alone. I haven't been alone for 12 months and I'm a writer and I need to be left alone. Um, but that's oh, like yes. besides the point. Like, I think I can't, I've, I've forgotten what the original question was because I do this and I kind of wander off topic. But like just once oh the, the individuality in books and making sure that no two books is the same um you know there's so many different things up for grabs in the horror genre right there's like there's there's so many subgenres. i don't think it's as easy in this genre to write the same book twice as it is perhaps with crime or with a romance novel or like you know do you know what I mean and also I think yeah. the, the, the potential for kind of blending those genres is is so cool within horror like I want to write a romance horror I do write quite often write a lot of love stories into my horror books and and, and sci-fi and dark fantasy and all that it's like you'd have to try pretty hard to write the same book twice I think yeah and I do I well the subgenre is also really and uh, maybe everyone has this experience. I don't know. But I just I feel like when I started, my idea of what was available in horror and what was available to be written was fairly narrow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then when you start to read these things and see how people express themselves in different ways and, um, you know, that not everything I'm extremely literal minded. And so for me, how, trying to write anything without writing it in exactly the words that mean that thing, you know, yeah. was really like a big like hurdle to overcome. 
Um, but it is, I mean, the more that we're exposed to, to each other's work and, and to the way that everyone experiences things and rather than emulate that, you know, it sort of like opens up. Um, so was, yeah. was that kind of your experience when you got into the, to the community or had you already pretty much experienced a lot of that? Well, it's just interesting going back to your point about kind of prose and, and writing, learning how to write things less literally and purple prose, I guess, is what we're talking about, like putting a load of purple prose into something. And I saw an amazing uh, tweet the other day and it was a quote, a couple of pictures from Angela Carter. She was being quoted as like basically saying that her work was absolutely stuffed to the gills with purple prose. And then she just kind of was like, and so fuck what? <laughs> like, that's the way I write, you know, and that's perfect. That's that's exactly the kind of like role model, I think, that I I look I look for like uh, particularly people like Margaret Atwood and like her voice is so distinctive and her way of writing is just so uniquely her and and her sentences go on for days like days and days and her descriptions of things are so rich and compelling um but also I I really like that restrained way of writing that Cormac McCarthy has where it's just the kind of bare bones like this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And I, I just I like playing with that with different books. So the book I'm writing at the moment, I'd say Dear Laura was more of a McCarthy approach where it was very literal. This happened. There wasn't much explanation around it about why which a lot of readers found frustrating. Why did this happen? Why is that? Why is this? I'm like, well, that was deliberate choice on my part. The book I'm writing at the moment for Cemetery Gates Media, which is a ghost story, is very, very different in that it's very florid. And I'm having fun with the purple prose a little bit more. So um, that's completely not what you just asked me. But it just it made it reminded me of that uh, that quote. Um, you're going to have to remind me what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just kind of about what, you know, how much I guess how much of that different type of storytelling you'd experienced or whether it was a whether it was a large expansion in. I, well, I guess whether your your ideas and your creativity really expanded like that when you started experiencing those types or whether you were already more aware of all those kind of subgenres and, and different ways of expression. I, I think I was probably so I mean, I've only really been dabbling in this as a professional and, and within the community in the last kind of year or two. But I I've been writing since I was a kid and I've been reading since I can remember. And I'm a big reader and I'm, a, I'm quite a wide reader. And I think because I studied uh, English lit at university as well, I became quite a classical reader. So I, I'm, I was very aware from very early on of the, the, the massive variety of voice out there, um, not just in the horror genre, but, um, you know, across fiction in general. And, you know, I was always I fell in love with writers like Hanif Qureshi and Salman Rushdie and Angela Carter and, um, the classics, you know, um, Agatha Christie is a huge influence on me. And they're all so different. And and I love that. And I think it's about that authenticity of voice for me. I think I, I learned from a very young age without knowing that that's what I was learning, was that authenticity of voice is very, very important. And that's why I was drawn to those writers, because their voice kind of rang out clear, like, you know, struck bell kind of clear. Um, and, and I knew that I when I was going to write my own stuff. I've been writing for such a long time and I'd always struggled to find that voice, always. And over the years, I started like multiple books and never finished them because I had a job and I had a life and I'd liked partying and 
drinks and drugs and all that jazz and and then I got married and had a kid and you know you kind of as a mum and or a parent in general you kind of package your entire self away and put it in a box on a shelf for a couple of years because you don't you don't exist for a little bit um but that's fine you know that's part of the process and then when I finally was in a position where my kid was old enough to be self-sufficient and start school and I could start writing properly I think I finally found the voice you know I just and I and I found that the voice maybe because I'd been through so many things when I started writing seriously at that point in my life I found my voice through kind of expressing pain and ex- and exploring trauma and looking and examining relationships and c- kind of wanting to talk about people in my life that I'd met that had, had an impact on me. I-, I think the voice kind of suddenly clicked into place. You know, they say there's that expression that's saying clicks into place and it very much felt like that. It felt like a kind of plug fitting into a socket like straight away and then I could and then I just went with it um so I'm not sure if that answers your question but like I don't think it was necessarily kind of looking at what my peers were doing around me I think it was just many many years of kind of like gradual literary awareness of what I loved in a book and what I loved in a writer and then combining that with like life experiences to kind of suddenly get to the point where I was I could read my own work back and notice the difference and and so I look back at all those unfinished novels that I've got sitting in my hard drive that I've spent the last 15-20 years trying to write and I can tell something that I wrote 15 years ago because it doesn't sound like me it sounds like <laughs> yeah. a an embryonic version of me um and, and I, I think that's sometimes that there's a truth in the fact that you need something to write about you need to go through like I get really upset about why didn't I do this 10 years ago I could be so much further ahead in my career but I wouldn't perhaps have been as good a writer because I didn't have those life experiences to kind of inform me and push me forward and drive me um in in the same way so uh, that in no way answers your question at all does it (laughs) but that's why that's why I like doing this with you because it always goes in a much better place so I, f- I mean, I, Did I just waffle as I drink wine and then <laughs> try to convince somebody that I know what I'm on about. <laughs> I, I find it interesting what you said, you know, not just about like, uh, you know, your journey and like the life experiences, but I wonder how many writers do that where the, like you said, you had all of these books from that time where you were trying to find your voice and like looking back at it because like I've just started writing my own stories, but I always like hearing writers and I wonder how many of them do this, like where they'll go all the way back to the beginning and kind of, you know, see that journey that they took and like what that's like to be able to be like, you know, where you are now and, you know, having that very distinctive voice and then, kind of revisiting you know like that earlier part of yourself where you were trying to discover that and kind of like just what's that like like is it just weird or is it you know like it's really, do you find benefit from it it's really interesting so one of the really kind of solid concrete examples of that is I I wrote a short story for a website it must be like nearly 20 years ago now I was at university and I wrote this short fiction piece and it was about um, a a dad who had kind of infrequent access to his kid because he was divorced and he took her for hot chocolates. 
now I was a kind of child of divorce and my dad left when I was very young and I got to the age of kind of 18 19 which is the the age I was when I wrote this story and I actually met my dad um for the first time so when I was 17 or 18 I kind of met him and I was working through an awful lot of things and um and I so I wrote this short and quite sort of saccharine story about a dad in a coffee shop with his little girl and then about a year and a half ago I rediscovered it on my hard drive and I rewrote it but I rewrote it with a supernatural bent and in my voice Mm -hmm. and it's in my short story collection these wounds we make and it's called hearts of stone and I took the idea of this kind of quite sad desperate father figure He, he missed his daughter and couldn't really deal with his own emotions around it which was kind of like a bare bones concept that I'd written 20 years ago and I turned it into a story which was kind of like a male version of Medusa except like his his rage and his anger and his emotions came out in a way that kind of turned people to stone and I worked that into this short story about a girl drinking hot chocolate and I think that's I've got so many other bits of writing now and books and things that I am gradually doing that with I'm reclaiming them and I'm rewriting them and I'm kind of slapping that you know plastering them with that voice and with those life experiences and with the benefit of hindsight and it means nothing's ever wasted and 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 it's weird because you can see the progression of yourself as a human being over a 20-year period you like you you read the story like fuck I had a load of issues to work through (laughs) and I still do (laughs) I'm like Jesus Christ I mean anybody that reads my stuff knows that I'm probably mentally in a bit of a pickle sometimes but it's it's extraordinary it's like I guess it's like reading your childhood diaries you know like Mm -hmm. today I wore red and bought a gherkin and it's, it's just more exciting than that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird I don't know about you if you kept diaries but I kept diaries as a kid for as long as I can remember until I ran out of time to do it and I read some of those diary entries back and children write in a very matter-of-fact way about all sorts of things and I'm reading them and they make me really sad I'm like Jesus Christ like what yeah it's it's astonishing to like think <laughs> yeah. of how the passage of time just kind of blurs that for you a little bit and yeah again that didn't really answer your question at all did it? <laughs> no 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 it did that, and that was that was perfect because that's kind of like w- what I like hearing about when um writers do that like sometimes they don't you know have as concrete of examples you know it's sometimes which is fine but it's sometimes like you know I just see how far I progressed but like, no, that was a perfect response. And it was cool that you were able to like, not only kind of see, you know, yourself back then and kind of what inspired you to write that story, but that, like you said, you, nothing was wasted. It was almost like that story, you know, was like waiting for you to come back and find it because it seems like when you did, it all kind of clicked in the place now that you're at a different, you know, point in your life. I'm a big believer in that things happen for a reason, which is why I know that Laurel's going to end up with a Stoke at some point in the not too distant future, because I think it happens for a reason. And I think there will be a book that will come along and then it will click like into place. And uh, Mm -hmm. Dear Laura was that book for me. And I hope that's probably not my my first and my last. (laughs) There's no chance. There's no chance unless you just veer off and start, you know, living, um, 
in, in, a, a, cave, in a monastery in or something. <laughs> 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 I've been really tempted just lately. Like, <laughs> it's, I feel it's, it's difficult because I'm at home and my husband works at home and he's used to that office environment and he's used to kind of getting up from his desk when he needs to walk around and ambling over and chatting to someone or co- like water cooler moments and like so his water cooler moment is me but but he'll kind of walk in when I'm like mid phrase or like deep in a deep in a haunting scene and scare the shit out of me and then, and then he wants to kind of converse and have a conversation I'm like please go away um I'm just I'm just so intolerable to live with. <laughs> but I, at some point, though, I actually think we need to have a round table of spouses or partners of writers mm. because I need to figure out why they do that. I need to know why <laughs> when they see us in front of a laptop, we're obviously writing. It's a fair okay. game. It's, it's fair like, game. This is a good point to bring up everything about the last five years that I didn't like and how we're going to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you're really in the zone. <laughs> How about we learn a new recipe? <laughs> I've, I've been researching faucets. So I'd like to bring you my idea. <laughs> what do you think to the chrome finish on this? <laughs> oh, which might be why the stuff that I put out last year wasn't worthy of a Bram Stoker nomination. It's probably like... <laughs> There's probably half a shopping list in Girl on Fire that I haven't realised is in there. <laughs> uh, no, Girl on Fire. Oh, yeah. man, I, I really do. I've seen you tweet a couple of times lately. I would love to see more Ruby Miller there. At, you know, and it's a rich because Rich just like tore through it, you know, right before I read it. Um and I always thought you meant to tore it up. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. So I just hate this book so much. No. Just ripped it no. to bits. Like Jesus, no. a bit hard. <laughs> and, and he told me, you know, he was like, "It's it's gonna not he it's gonna not go in a place that you know you expect." And it's true because it's very much keeps the promise of Girl on Fire. That's very much you know absolutely the same. But the other you know the other stuff, the side story stuff uh, with Helen was so intriguing and just, you know, I would have followed a straight Ruby journey right down the road with her, but this just expanded it to a point where it's like, yeah, it really is hard to put down. You're like, what is that? Oh, but the what? 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 That's, so, that's my clever ploy to get everybody yeah. to buy and read all my other books because they're all connected. Oh. Um, so oh. unfortunately, you're going to have to read everything else I've ever written so they <laughs> get an understanding <laughs> of what Helen's job is and why she's so important. Um, it's funny, I came across, you know how you do that thing every now and then when you kind of Google your own name or your own hashtag just to see because you're a masochist and you're an idiot and, <laughs> and all the advice you give to other people you just don't follow for yourself. Um, and I came across a review for Girl on Fire and it was it was written by a chap and he very openly stated that he read it because he didn't think it was for his eyes. Um, it's fair play to him. He didn't tag me in it or anything. So it wasn't like he'd written this review and tagged me. It was completely his opinion. And and I, I got to the end of it. I was kind of uh, both insulted and really happy um, because he said that he went into it thinking it was going to be basic bitch revenge porn. Um, and, and it wasn't, um, and I, and, you know, I can't, I can't sort of say anything about his choice of words and his phraseology, but I was really happy that I'd taken a book that he clearly thought was with an agenda that was a certain thing and it didn't turn out to be that thing. And 
that's a win for me again it's that idea of taking somebody on a journey and then just completely pulling the rug out from their feet when they think they know what's going on um but also it was an opportunity for me to have fun and connect all of my ideas into a single universe so it ties in with white pines it ties in with all of my short stories it ties in with everything except for dear laura dear laura lives outside of that universe um i just i wonder whether i've created something so big i don't know <laughs> quite how to bring it home but well, i'm going to be relaxed time soon you can, yeah well you exactly can, you yeah know. it's a long-term thing for me i'm going to be relaxed about it and just i was always obsessed with what king did with Derry and mm. and his connected universe mm. i always loved i loved that right from day one and i think because i read so much fantasy as a teenager as well and the world building aspect um the idea of crossovers has always really excited me and and you know with whether it's cartoons or comics or, or superheroes and i just thought well why the fuck not this is the joy of being a self-published writer sometimes i can do whatever the hell i like so helen is a very um if you want to read Helen, Helen's origin story, uh, there's a story in Cruel Works of Nature called It Sees You When You're Sleeping, um, which she mentions, she sort of refers to in Girl on Fire. Um, and actually quite a couple of the things that she refers to are in Cruel Works. Um, it's really fun to explore that. I love it. I, I like putting in sneaky little Easter eggs. Um, <laughs> Girl on Fire actually appears in White Pines as well in, in like one very brief scene, which nobody's picked up on yet. Um, somebody will. <laughs> it's fun. It's good to have fun with your own stuff. Otherwise, what's the point if you get bored by your own writing? Like it's. But I'm glad people are liking it. I did think that it would get misconstrued. I, I, I think the take up has been slower as a result. I think people do think it's a bit of a teen revenge porn book that's man hatey. Um, it definitely isn't that. I, I wanted to explore the idea of a a bad female character who was just bad you know and okay she has a tragic backstory and that is totally why she's bad um but it doesn't excuse her behavior at all and she's a thoroughly represent reprehensible human being annoyingly she's the character that people seem to like the most even though she's she's a mass murdering bitch <laughs> people love her um yeah there's a there's a a, a discussion there around likability of characters and, and particularly female characters that, that I've kind of dived into before, but I, I'm enjoying the response to it. People are liking liking the book, and that makes me happy. Yeah, it, it's um, it was, I love that book. Um, like Laurel said, I didn't tear it up like tear up. The, <laughs> I, I started it, and right from the opening, it just that whole like opening chapter like i was hooked like i told laurel i was like i think my exact words were like jaw-droppingly awesome and <laughs> if I, if i'm allowed like if i'm allowed to gush just a little bit like gush when i finished it i got some big box of tissues here i can clean up right <laughs> okay well and <laughs> When I when I finished it, like I said, I'm still very early in my own writing journey. When I finished this book, and Laurel's read a couple of my stories, when I finished reading Girl on Fire, when I was done, I was like, this is like the exact sort of thing that, you know, like I want to get across in my writing, like kind of the way you shape the story 
and kind of like, you know, there's all this heavy emotional stuff in it, but then you also have like this completely like, I don't even, I don't even have words for it, but just like this complete, like all this action and just some like really incredible, vivid, like brutal scenes and just kind of like that interplay between all of it. I, I told Laurel, I was like, you know, out of, you know, when you pick up like inspiration from people and you start to like, especially early on, like cultivate like influences and people that kind of inform your work. I was like, after I read this, I would definitely consider, you know, Gemma, like one of those writers for me. There's no bigger compliment to me than somebody reading something I've written and then feeling that fire enough to go off and write their own stuff. I think that's, that's all you can ever ask for. Like, Mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm not I'm not in this game for the plaudits or the praise although it's lovely but for me mm-hmm. if somebody says they've read my stuff and it's inspired them to want to do something similar in their own work I I feel 10 feet tall when I hear that because that's <laughs> that's how I felt when I read all of those writers I was talking about earlier you know they they like mm-hmm. Jeff Vandermeer is an enormous inspiration to me and I routinely blather on about how much I love his work because I read Annihilation and it directly influenced everything I think that came out of me for the next 12 months Um, (laughs) because I was just blown away by the the quality of the vision and the depth of the imagination and the way in which he expressed it and the voice and the tone and everything um and and it I think it then went and made me a slightly better writer so not not like not that I was being derivative, but it, it was inspiring. Um, I think yeah. everybody's derivative to a point as well. I really hate the word derivative because, like, the last person mm-hmm. that had an original idea died about 250 years ago. But, like, you, you <laughs> yeah. can be, like, you can be really inspired by particular artists or writers. And I think that, like, that just, it's a really fucking joyous thing. And, and again, that's, like, mm-hmm. that's the best thing about the community when it's at its best, the writing community at its best, is like we are inspired by each other and we're pushed on by each other and we, we enjoy each other's work. Um, I, I don't really understand that insular view where you just kind of focus on your own stuff all the time. Like, mm-hmm. just, I don't get it. I just think the whole beauty of it is that we're all doing this cool thing. We're all writing. It's so cool. Like, I love that other people are enjoying my stuff because I, I don't read as much as I want to. I, I, I can't read for shit at the moment, which is really annoying. Um, but I have read things by my peers and by my colleagues and stuff. Like, particularly when we were editing um, We Are Wolves, I was blown away by the quality of the stories that we got. And it was so inspiring to me. Like, it did make me want to sit down and write a better story. And just, I think the first one we got was, was it Sarah Reed's story? I can't remember. Uh, Sarah or Red's maybe. Yeah, Red. No, it was Red's story, wasn't it? Yeah, Red's, Dollhouse. Yeah. 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 And and I think I knew then that we were kind of putting together something quite special and it, it made me want to just write something a bit, you know, better than, not not that I'm lazy normally, but you know what I mean? Like it wanted to, yeah. it wanted to pull out from a different place, a different part of me. Um, mm-hmm. No, I love that. I, I, lo- I love the idea that, I think it's also important to, for me, I, I write, I have quite a cinematic brain and Girl on Fire was definitely my most movie-like of stories in, in the sense of like, there are a lot of um, bits that I kind of took from Terminator the first time I watched Terminator, <laughs> which I love, you know, the kind of stealing of the the biker jackets and, mm. you know, nakedness and 
I, t- I, I was I wanted to write little tributes to the things I loved and most of those things are movie based um you know and I I so the story the original story Girl on Fire that the novella is based on came out in Cruel Works of Nature which was my first published book and the No Sleep podcast actually adapted it um, so there's an audio version of kind of a couple of the chapters if you if you want to hear and and they turned it into an ear movie so it was produced with incredible voice actors and special effects like sound effects and an amazing score written by um Brandon Boone who's also kind of like one of my best friends and it, and it just like you listened to it and it was like listening to a movie and I loved it so much I thought I need to write more of this I need more of this kind of I play it out like a film in my head and I think that really helps with the the action scenes in particular um you know I love the idea of a big car explosion and I love the idea of someone being stabbed in the back of the head and then like you know it's just like it's just explore all of that and and the the oxygen chamber and stuff like that was oh um, gosh (laughs) I'm spoiling it like fuck for anybody that hasn't read it yet sorry Oh, that's well. And I'm kind of interested to know, too, now, because you've mentioned that all of that is is tied in. So the the, the, the story that you're working on for Cemetery Gates, is that that's six rooms? It is. Yeah. And is that also tied into the universe? No, I I think I'll keep that separate. Um, And the reason for that is that Cemetery Gates have kind of built their own mythology. Um, So I'm writing within their world a little bit now. So the story centers around um, a house called the Sunshire Chateau. And it was built by a chap called Charles Lester III. And the Lesters kind of form the crux of quite a lot of Cemetery Gates' other anthologies. Um, So I was kind of given the the, the lovely thing about Cemetery Gates is they come to me with a very clear brief that they want me to write within. And that gives me an enormous amount of focus. And then but then they let me go off and do my own spin on it. So I have another book with them called Grief is a False God. And they had a very clear they wanted to do a kind of it's a biblical tale and they wanted to do this version of it um, to, to match the illustrations that Annabelle Santos had done. And they came to me and, and let me put my own spin on, you know, the bones of what they'd put together. Um, and then off the back of that, we kind of then discussed uh, six rooms. Um, so it's not in my universe, but it's in their universe. So there are some familiar characters if you've read some of their other books. Um whether or not they survive is another matter altogether. <laughs> <laughs> How was that sort of working on on spec like that? Was that something you had done before grief as a false god? I mean, I in my kind of previous life as a business marketer and copywriter, I I wrote a lot of business copy to to very tight brief. Um, I used to I used to write a lot about stainless steel urinals, which I always chuckle about. Um, <laughs> the various different qualities of a piss receptacles, you know, all the glorious. Uh, <laughs> I'm used to writing to brief. I don't like to write to brief that often. I find it very constraining. I'm a very messy writer and I'm a very organic writer. And every time I've ever tried to plan anything, I've always not written to the plan. Um, it's like an internal act of subconscious rebellion that I can't stop doing. Uh, I need to get better at plotting because that's my weakness as a writer. I'm not the best plotter in the world. Um, but they they didn't sort of constrain me so much. So they just gave me the background of the house, the kind of era that the house was built within, the 
main cast of characters in terms of just mentioning them or, or giving me kind of brief guidelines around them. And then the rest is kind of fair game for me, which has been really nice. So I've been playing with story structure a bit on that as well. And some ideas that I wanted to have and things I wanted to write a male protagonist because I haven't done that for a while. Uh, I don't particularly want to be pigeonholed as somebody that only writes female characters. Um, so I'm exploring that in six rooms and and it's nice. It's it's a nice thing to to and they've been very patient with me as well because it was sort of supposed to be with them by last year but covid kind of screwed that up quite monumentally um and they've been extremely patient they're, they're good folks so I'm lucky yeah. to work with them yeah yeah they they really are they're very fast <laughs> with everything they do very and i like that that's me to a t like if i decided i wanted to to write a book next week then if i had appropriate childcare <laughs> I would, you know, like I'm very impulsive and quick to, quick to market like that. And they're the same. So I think we sort of suit each other in that sense. Ironically, they've had to wait forever for me to write this book. So <laughs> I'll gloss over that. <laughs> Anybody that, that can't understand the insanity that the last year is, you know. Again, I, also, I don't know. I don't know about you, but like writing last year felt like swimming in porridge. I just, it's like pulling teeth. It's awful. It was so long and drawn out and. Yeah, as well, especially when my son basically quit napping, I kind of thought, you know, that I was Life done. Life is over. Life yeah. is over when they stop napping. <laughs> Sorry, that's it. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Now, now it's like mornings and and night. Yeah, I will. I will say, of course, it's not. It doesn't give me any more time to write, but it's cracking me up now because he has. We've talked a lot about legends. He got really excited about the idea of legends, and he would tell me one, and then he'd say, "But I don't think it's real." And I, I tell him like, well, that's fine. It doesn't have to be. That's the joy. We write our own legends. So tell me about it. And so now he's been developing this story of the dark and spooky cat legend. And it's awesome. It's an awesome age. My son, my son is a few years older than yours, but he went through that stage and he's still in that stage. And he wants to write. And and, and I'd like to write with him actually. I think I'm while he's still very very young take his bonkers ideas because they're nuts when they're that age children are insane they're like tiny genius people and they just have these like unfettered unconstrained imaginations i want to kind of harness some of that and then <laughs> like an evil mother use it <laughs> my <financial game. laughs> no but like actually i i wonder how powerful that would be for a kid to come up with an idea and then see a a book as a finished product you know as a result yeah. of that idea that's not something that happened to me until I was in my 30s you know a couple of years ago I wonder how different and informative it would have been if I'd been able to do that 20 years ago um so I'm quite keen to maybe recreate that with him if I get time and I don't kill him first because <laughs> <laughs> I am um, you know how like Daenerys Targaryen used to say she was the mother of dragons like I am the mother of a boy <laughs> <laughs> like I feel the same kind of <laughs> theory kind of steal in my voice and I say that I am mother of boy <laughs> it does feel very much the same and you know while and I, I am I am ridiculously lucky in in the sense that he is that he's at a little bit of a hard age for him to be home with us consistently because he's really can't well or won't you know entertain himself and that's fine um but he's 
ridiculously well behaved to be his age. So I get that I'm very lucky, but I am noticing a lot, a lot of what I'm writing in my short stories are like irritable, uh, you know, yeah, like irritable sto- stories of irritable motherhood. Like, why isn't there any help? Why doesn't anyone do anything? Oh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> Why is that poo on the wall again? <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's like there's that glamorous side. You know, people come like they talk to you and they're like, oh my god, it must be so cool to be a writer. And it's like, it is so cool. But you know, I folded 29 pairs of pants before I came on this interview. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a very motherhood is an extraordinary thing. I. I'm simultaneously glad I didn't actually get the complete truth from people before I had a kid and <laughs> regretful that people didn't tell me more about it as well. And and I think it's definitely informed a lot of what I've written over the last couple of years. I've been exploring that like mad and I probably will until I die. Just the concept of childhood and motherhood and responsibilities and making sure we don't fuck them up and guilt guilt oh my god guilt as a horror writer that's like mecca isn't it that's i i, I bathe in guilt on a daily basis <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they are awesome as well and it's and it's very cool when they come to you and they say my my, my son will come to me and I go mom i've had an idea for one of your books i'm like okay tell me about it like well there's a swirling vortex full of dismembered limbs <laughs> shit that's really good <laughs> yeah, I can actually that. use this yeah and he's like what well, are you going to put it in your story mum I'm like I think I will <laughs> it's really cool It's I love children's imaginations and I, I remember myself at that age and I was always lost in books and it's kind of nice to see a new generation of that yeah I um, mm-hmm. I well, and he's totally a different kid and he's, you know, grown and now he reads existential stuff just like his father. But uh, <laughs> my, my stepson was 10 when I met him and I, oh, I just, I, you know, I have always been nose buried in a book. So, and he didn't read. And I was like, oh, it's because you don't have the right one. And I bought him all these ghost stories and he's like, I mean, thank you. But, you know, and he just <laughs> never would, never yeah. got into it. But, but yeah, I, I guess it's because we weren't giving him like Rudolf Steiner and you know, whatever other <laughs> philosophy he was going to read, because now that's what he reads. So, but my kid is very much like that, and he he finds he loves books, he loves stories, he finds reading a chore. I think because he has a very busy head, so we we put on a lot of audiobooks in our house, so he can do other things, and he's still reading because audiobooks are reading. I don't care how fucking snobby you are about it, audiobooks <laughs> are still reading, and I will die on that hill. And um, and and so he reads while he's making Lego or you know occupying himself because he's such a busy person he can't really sit still for very long he's got ants in his pants and uh, and it works for him because the story goes in you know he understands character development and plotting and setting (laughs) and the nuances of kind of fiction because he listens to it it doesn't have to read it to do it I think it's they all find their own way don't they they all find their own way to it whether it's movies like it's all valid I, I hate snobbery of any shape size form I hate it I hate it with a passion. I get kind of get really cross about nothing in a minute. <laughs> <Makes myself cross. laughs> well, it's it reminds me though, because I mean, you were saying earlier, and in large part, this is part of the self-publishing thing. Is like, you know, you will get that that snobby idea that you know, like Rich was pointing out, where people say like, oh, it's you know, it's the quality, or there's too much of it, and that is 
it's wrong on a number of levels, but it's the idea that, and I have not run into it in this community. I've seen it elsewhere where it's like, why are you even writing? There's too many of us anyways. There's no room for you. You know, we really, do we really need another book? And I, I just, I feel like who, if every person on this planet has a book in them and wants to sit down and write, then there's room for it and they should do it. And, you know, to discourage people who are just starting, I had a colleague's um, daughter is like 11 or 12 and she specifically honed in on me at a Christmas party. They told me she was going to, they were like, okay, she's got questions. And I was like, bring it on, you know? <laughs> and I saw something not long after that, where someone was talking about that. Like, there's just, there's too many novels. There's who's, you know, nobody should be writing too much. In. And I'm just like, okay, I just got here. And also there's an 11 year old behind me. Okay. Also, this like, is not crack stopping. My knuckles. Crack yeah. my knuckles. Let's get stuck in here, bitch. Let's go. <laughs> we are legion. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's very common perspective from people that don't write you know I, I think you get most of those comments that you get from people are from people that don't write or don't enjoy it as much as we do it's like why are you writing this book are you writing this book because you think at some point it will fit into a niche and get published and end up on a best-selling list or an awards list because if you are then absolutely fair play to you but it's going to be a bit of a long and difficult road, I think. Or if you're writing because you have a story you want to tell and you love writing, like, doesn't that feel just a bit nicer <laughs> for everybody? <laughs> like, and and I don't, you know, I, I, I am a huge proponent of the fact there should be absolutely no gatekeeping to writing whatsoever. Because you could write a novel with your finger in some mud and you would be writing and you would be a writer. One of my kind of not pet hates, because that's too harsh of a word, but one of the things I, I see routinely are people who put aspiring writer in their bios on things like Twitter. Mm. And it's like, my love, if you are sitting down and you're writing, then you're a writer and that's how it should be. And don't let anyone ever tell you any differently because you can't gatekeep words and stories. You fucking can't because we've been telling them orally for fucking thousands of years. You can't gatekeep personal experience and desire and emotion and all of those things like and that's all we're doing we're just we're putting ourselves in into a different format like nobody is a gatekeeper of that that's ridiculous that's like somebody gatekeeping your entire personality and your soul so I, I find snobbery is so fascist almost like it, the idea that you can't express yourself or be yourself because of somebody else's preconceived notion of what something should be like yeah fuck that it's <laughs> time for that <laughs> I, I'm not very good at parties and things like that which is probably why it's quite a good idea that the last two Stoker cons have been cancelled because I haven't actually met anybody in person yet other than uh, Violet and, and Bev and uh, Beverly Lee lovely and God, I um, really can't wait for that though. Oh, um, I'm just so worried I'm gonna get blotto and just start doing this to people. <laughs> <laughs> just just, just pashing all over them and then they'll just like you'll see a wall of people backing away from me and I'll be just stood on my own in front of like <laughs> I don't know, I'm I'm thinking it is a convention of writers, so I think we're probably all just gonna be doing that. Yeah, I hope That's so. Just... We can all shout at each other. <laughs> all be covered in spittle and opinions like <laughs> <laughs> bit of bit of booze <laughs> <sighs> sorry totally 
taken you off track. I'm terrible. Oh no, you're you're good. I was just sitting here like sadly wishing for a boozy con. Like I don't care who spits on me. <laughs> next year, next year, I have big plans next year. <laughs> Spit on me. Um, <laughs> this is this is. I, I said I wasn't going to do this. I'm so sorry. I'm really professional. I promise. Um. Oh gosh, we yeah no. This is yeah probably one of the least professional shows. <laughs> happy about that <laughs> sometimes i'm just like you know i'll message james sabata and just be like how do you just like keep doing it and it seems like you have a plan and things go places <laughs> those are good boys i love that podcast i've been oh, on the, the necronomy podcast twice now um and i can't wait to go back on i just i really that's a joyous experience for me because it's just spitballing about something that i enjoy for an hour and a half and they know their stuff as well. They like you say, they know how to let somebody talk, um, but steer it in a good way, which I quite yeah. like. Um yeah. I've been on interviews where the host isn't really interested in what you have to say. Uh the host just wants to be just wants it a, to be a platform for them. Mm. Um, and to sort of set themselves up as a guru. And I've been on other shows where it's been the other way completely and I've just waffled on for like four <laughs> hours. And you can hear the other person visibly dying under <laughs> 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 the part of that microphone. <laughs> There's an art to a good interview, I think. And you see that with written interviews as well. There's an art to interviewing. Mm. The responses you get, if the responses you get from an author are a bit weak and lacklustre, it's probably because your questions were a bit routine and boring. Um, you tend to find like I've answered the same questions now multiple times and I'm happy to do so more than happy to do so but I do love the questions that are a bit different as well not 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 uh, like annoying but like different (laughs) 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 um, I don't know if you've ever listened to the cursed morsels podcast Um, not yet no it's on my list um, it's it's really good um, and Eric Ragland does of course I think he also wears himself out a little bit on the questions because he he does I mean he's so intricate and it's very like geared towards the author specifically and like their most recent work and so like the questions he asked me were like great I was like wow and he gives them to you beforehand so you get a little bit of time to to think about it you know and how you're going to answer into your psyche yes (laughs) and it was really like I was like man I love this but also like looking back at what I do I'm like are you tired Eric because (laughs) (laughs) because that level of preparation is just um it's admirable uh that's that's love for the craft which which i really fully appreciate this is horror um michael david wilson um and bob pastorella as well they do a very good job of that they they i was really flattered to be invited on and and we had a two-hour session it was split into two episodes and the questions they asked were just so well prepared and so thoughtful and the feedback has been that, the, you know, from lots of people, it was such a helpful interview. And it's like, well, actually, the thanks goes to the people that asked the questions and steered it because it was it was a joy to be part of that. Well, it was like four o'clock in the morning. I think by the time I finished, <laughs> <laughs> Mike was in Japan and, and stuff and I'm in the UK. But it was it was a pleasure. I love doing interviews. Like I, it's not that I like talking about myself. I just like talking to people. And I, and I love talking about writing and books and and so I love doing interviews but I have I've noticed I think the more that you do like there are certain ones that you enjoy more than others um as well and and I think yeah I'm with you James and Don are very um well and they I've I've said it before too again I've just 
very literal minded. And so the idea of really like picking apart the social commentary of movies had never remotely occurred to me, you know? And so when I started trying to do it for the one I picked, I was like, Oh, Oh, there is social com. Wow. There's social commentary. commentary (laughs) See, That that to me was my sweet spot because that's what I would do on an evening in the pub with my friends. So I just felt like I was in the pub again. It was lovely. Um, I love to deep dive. Thing. Like so I think I did Hereditary and then Scare Me, and I chose those deliberately because I felt they both had so much to say about how we live and the society we live in at the oh, moment. Oh yes, yeah. Um, but I think they then they do also do things like Batman Returns, which yeah. they, <laughs> James and Don they got Josh Rubin onto the show, um, and uh, I think they spent 25 minutes talking about Michelle Pfeiffer's neck. <laughs> <laughs> how much of an effect it had on them all as teenage boys so yeah they did, the social commentary sometimes fluctuates from like <laughs> in terms of what the, the, what you get out of it <laughs> but she had a beautiful neck like she did, like, yes. clearly left a mark on them <laughs> i would not have thought of that as as what would make an make an impression but no I not on me is there a word for for neck Love, there must be a word for people that love necks. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm going to Google it. And it's going to be the title of your episode, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you can tag James in it as well. And tell him. <laughs> I'm never invited onto another show ever again. That's it. I've ruined it for myself. <laughs> well, I've been seeing something about, and I don't know if you've... Uh, been able to you know uh, solidify anything with it but that you are looking at maybe working on another anthology putting one together for the the um or is it urban versus rural Mm, yeah I wanted to do something very very British I feel like and this is no insult to my lovely American colleagues and and friends overseas but I, I feel like the Brit horror scene at the moment is is doing some really really cool things very very cool things like you know there's there's obviously the host guys there's I'm talking probably more movies than I am literature but you've got everybody involved with host you've got um films like Saint Maud being made like filmmakers coming forward like um sketchbook pictures who are a a filmmaking couple based in Bristol and they're they're making short movies which you're gonna you're gonna be hearing about in a couple of years time you know They're, they're they're definitely going places and there's a very distinctive flavor to British horror that you see in things like um The Descent and um you know anything that Neil Marshall has put together it's just there's a very strong voice there it's quite irreverent and quite raw and whether it's folk horror or a werewolf movie there's something there that I wanted to tap into um and, and I find that the idea of doing that in literature with a with a short story collection where we focus on Britain. Um, maybe it's also because we're going through Brexit at the moment and I'm kind of mourning the loss of the country that I grew up in. And mm. and the changing of identity for me is very, very painful. I've always considered myself European and Britain kind of an open borders place. And the fact that it's changing into something that isn't that distresses me deeply. Um, maybe I wanted to explore that and the idea of horror that's location based so whether we talk about you know Britain is kind of multifaceted we have beautiful countryside we have woodlands we have wetlands we have fenlands we have 
scuzzy concrete town centres that were built after the Second World War when everything was flattened. We have old medieval villages. We have kind of prehistory with Stonehenge. We have such an enormous variety and depth of landscape and geography and geology and folklore that I love the idea of exploring that with an anthology. So I think I just did what I normally do on Twitter, which is kind of vaguely shitposted something about wanting to write it. And <laughs> everyone was like, yeah, this is a good idea. And um, so I haven't gone much further with that, although I, I did uh, have a vague online chat with somebody the other day that I'm going to put a proposal to to see whether they'd be interested in in helping me bring that to life. Um, and I think I've learned through We Are Wolves how much work is involved in an anthology enough to know that I don't want to publish it myself I don't I'd like to pay writers as well um yeah. you know charity anthologies are really good but I'd love to do an anthology where I actually paid writers and um so I, I can't really sort of manage that on my own as things stand at the moment but hopefully I can I can find a good indie press to work with me and we can make that into a thing and I, I think it would <laughs> I think people would love that I think people really like the idea of something kind of uniquely British um in the yeah. horror space so I agree. Fingers crossed. Yeah, that would be that'd be very cool. I know with um, Diabolica Britannica that came out last yeah. uh, last summer, that was such a you know, and it's and it's obviously that's a very different setup what you're looking at with it. But I I agree with like just the the vast range of tone and subject matter and everything that be included there with it still having that sort of tie in. So mm. I think that'll be very, very cool. Yeah, it's something that I, I'd like to explore more with my own writing. I am exploring with my own writing. I'm doing a novella at the moment, which is, uh, is Bronze Age horror a thing? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, because there is so much history. And, and also, particularly where I grew up in a part of the country called the Fens, um, which was for many, many years underwater um, until they dug a load of ditches and drained it and it has a very unique landscape where it's flat as fuck it's like i think the only part in england where we get tornadoes occasionally like mini ones little tiny ones and um and it's a very unique wet marshy sky filled landscape so i wanted to explore that it's it's ripe for horror it's bleak as fuck (laughs) (laughs) Um, i don't i know i'm i'm very drawn to to the natural part of living as well and to to landscapes and and wildlife and countryside um I tend to write that a lot in my stuff because I've traveled a lot as well I think it's it's something that I've I pre the more you travel the more you appreciate about your own country but also the more you appreciate about other you know locations and places and stuff so the world's a really cool place and that's I've never been to America I've been to South America I've never been to America so I was due to come over there this year and last year and do a road trip but um hopefully next year yeah yeah well and if you make it to kentucky we apologize for mitch mcconnell and i will uh, (laughs) (laughs) personally responsible for him (laughs) it's all your fault laura (laughs) but uh, but you know we do have really good bourbon so Mm. anything alcoholic will win me over (laughs) doesn't even really need to be that good quite honestly i'm a cheap date Well, I've really, it's funny because I never was much of a gin drinker. And then I just, I, I bought some for a cocktail that I didn't really care for the cocktail. And then I started messing around and now I'm in love with gin giblets and I'm just like, I don't I'm even, smiling. 
I swear, what I need to do is I need to come over and see you and we need to make a proper gin and tonic, a proper gin and tonic. Um, and I will force you to drink it. You will have no choice. I will pin you down and make you drink it and you will enjoy it, Laurel. <laughs> At this point, I'm getting Whether pretty cozy like with it. gin. So I think I think I would I'd be easier doing it. It looked so good. And what was it? Oh, uh, not the Hunting of Hill House. But Bly. Oh, yeah, when they would bring out those G and T's, and I'm just like, oh, that looks lovely. <laughs> I, I, okay, so I, I, I caveat this by saying I love Mike Flanagan and I love his work and Hill House, and I also love the turn of the screw, which Bly Manor was uh, based upon. It was very obvious to me from the almost the opening moment that the house that they filmed in wasn't British wasn't English um which obviously the turn of the, the screw is a kind of is uh Henry James it's an English country house and I just I could just tell I could tell by the architecture I could tell by the the, the plants that were around the house I just knew instantly that it wasn't British and because I think I've grown up with the book so much and I'm such a purist I found I couldn't quite relax into Bly Manor which is a real shame because it was brilliant um but I was there going, well, the, but they wouldn't have that. And that fireplace is completely out of context for the period. <laughs> being an absolute knob about it. <laughs> it was actually, to me, a very un-British experience. Although, like, I, there's nothing to say that it needed to be adapted to be British. You know what I mean? There was absolutely mm-hmm. no reason. I keep saying I hate snobbery, and here I am being an absolute <laughs> snob about something. I'm a massive hip- um, it's, it's I need to specialty though you know it's hard not to I, I try not to do it too much with like and I don't watch a lot of legal dramas anymore but like <laughs> I bet, I <laughs> anytime someone comes running in with evidence at the last minute I was like does discovery mean anything to you this is not a thing you don't get to just throw evidence and David's like stop watching <laughs> <laughs> you're getting angry now Laurel go, go do something else <laughs> yeah I saw an amazing uh, thread on a doctor who was watching um Grey's Anatomy and scene by scene sort of unpicking everything and it, there was a really dramatic scene where two people had been in a bus accident or a train crash and they were they were connected by they were both impaled on the same pole and if they pulled the pole out one of them would die and one of them would survive and the doctor was just standing there like why don't you just cut the pole in half with a chainsaw <laughs> <laughs> get his head around why there had to be this big drama like one of them had to die um but then I get a lot of that with my work sometimes the stories I write I don't I try and be as realistic as possible where I can but like guns for example I don't know anything about guns we don't have guns over here you know we're not like my granddad had a few antique guns and an air rifle and he nearly shot the neighbor's head off one night when he thought he'd be burgled um which is why people don't have guns over here yes but I like if I need to write a scene where there are guns, like the amount of research and reading I have to do about it, and I still don't really understand what I'm talking about. Um, and I and people can tell. I think particularly if I write a story that's set in the US, I still I still have work to do on making that as believable experiences when I set a story in England. So what I end up doing is this kind of weird, homogenized, non-location specific, except with Girl mm-hmm. on Fire. Um, where I tried to make it as American as possible and I did my research on, on the locations and stuff. Um, apologies to the 
people of Glens Ferry. <laughs> wiped off the face of the earth um which is really funny because when the the podcast version of that came out in the podcast facebook group somebody excitedly was like i've never heard a story written about glenn's ferry before this is so cool and i'm like but we obliterated it in the story <laughs> um, but, but i enjoyed that but yeah i still i get pulled up on things so like really small little details and i think because because my best friend is American now I'm beginning to learn these things but like in England kitchens have doors on them so if I'm cooking I can close the door and my husband doesn't hear all the noise and stuff and my friend was like what do you mean the kitchen has a door I'm like the kitchen has a door and I shut the door and he's like kitchens don't have doors I'm like yes they fucking do (laughs) (laughs) I think in perhaps in the US houses are a lot more open plan um, yeah. whereas our houses tend to be more old-fashioned like Victorian terraces or 1930s terraces where individual rooms with doors are more of a thing. Um, there's just little subtle differences like that that I I can't quite get completely yet, which is why I need to do more work like travelling around America and learning. But this actually, I have to say, this is something that um, Ross Jeffrey, who's Stoker nominated this year for Tome and Juniper, is the first book of that trilogy he does he seems to write american very well um for a kind of white british lad from bristol <laughs> he seems to write us quite well <laughs> from what i, I can it's, understand it's probably i don't know i think it's small stuff maybe i mean like that because I, I wouldn't know i wouldn't have thought about that if a kitchen having a door um i remember getting really caught up on a book that uh was and it was really weird because it was there were British people in the book and then there was like an American couple and they were kind of, I think, slagging off the American couple a little bit as, you know, being terrible Americans, which we totally deserve. But the guy kept saying, Bob's your uncle. And I'm like, that is like, no, that's not that. Have all of the British people say that the American people are not going to say it. And it just like, it's not that it ruined the book, but it took a long time to get past it. That's ridiculous because that's uniquely British slang. That's like Cockney slang. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's lots and lots of things like that. I I did a Twitter thread on it once, like just lots of little things like the fact that a lot of our houses for example in England we don't have parking spaces so we all park on the street because our houses were built kind of 100 years ago when cars weren't around a couple of hundred years ago when cars didn't exist so it wasn't a feature of design um and particularly where I live I live in the middle of a city and very few of us have parking spaces so we all park on the road so as a result all of our cars are beaten to shit because (laughs) people like me that can't drive quite routinely kind of take the wing mirrors off as we go down the road because there's not a lot of room on the street it's very narrow streets to drive around you do a lot of ducking and diving in and out and stuff and just little things subtle things like in the US everybody drives everywhere and like I don't I haven't driven a car for like nearly two years now because I walk everywhere or take the bus and you can do that in Bristol. You can get anywhere within half an hour walk. Um, but I think in the States, it's very different. You have to drive most places to get places, depending on where you live, obviously. But like the, the, the norm seems to be if you go to the gym, you take the car. If you go shopping, you take the car. If you go for a walk, you take the car, um, which is alien <laughs> yeah. to me because I walk everywhere. I walk like 10 miles a day. So it's I, but I love that I think that's what makes it different and and then maybe going back to the idea of a kind of British anthology of horror that I like the idea of that voice coming through um those differences coming through and uh, but also the socio socioeconomic differences in our country we're very 
we can be very divided between rich and poor still, particularly under our kind of conservative government, which kind of exacerbates and highlights those, those differences. It'd be nice to see, like, so we have things called council estates here, where the houses were all built in the 60s and, and 70s and people live in tower blocks. And that's a very kind of unique way of living. Um, they're quite deprived areas and they're quite poor areas, but they've got their own distinctive character and personality. It's very different to like a village in the Cotswolds with a thatched roof where everybody's loaded and commutes in from London. You know what I mean? And I, I love the idea of those different stories being told and given a platform. Yeah. Well, here's hoping that... Uh that comes through and also that it's like really easy for you <laughs> <It> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suspect what will end up happening is if I can't find a publisher to take it on with me I will try and find some money to make it happen myself um, because it's taken root and it's an idea that's taken root and I can't quite shake it um, and it does make it easier that I can sort of do my own cover designs these days and stuff it's just the the paying authors bit so I might have to fundraise for it we'll see I'm, uh, I don't feel like doing any more Kickstarters ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's another way I can do it. <laughs> well, I am probably I'm hearing the squabblings of a small child. I'm probably going to have to go put the put the tiny one to bed um, here shortly. But uh, is there anything else you want to cover? Anything else you want to talk about that you've got coming up that you can talk about? There's a few things I can talk about. Um, the Six Rooms is one of them. So that's coming out from Cemetery Gates Media imminently as soon as I finish writing it. I'm working on a novella that I mentioned before, the kind of historic one called um, Child of Mud and Clay, which is very descriptive. Which I love that cover, by the way. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I was really pleased with how that came out. Um, I am hoping to kickstart the um, audiobook version of White Pines at some point in the next year. Nice. Um, I'm working on a couple of things I can't talk about, but they are audio based. So you'll probably be hearing a lot more of my stuff in your ears, which makes me very happy because podcasts are my happy place. Audio dramas are my happy place. Um, I'm working on a collaboration with Ross Jeffrey and Christopher Stanley, and they are um, two authors. They're based in Bristol as well. We're writing a novel together. Oh, wonderful. Um, at some point, S.H. Cooper and I need to finish season two of Calling Darkness before <laughs> she skins me alive. Um, she's been so patient as well, bless her. Well, she's been off writing a gazillion books yes. in the meantime. It's not that she's been sitting on her laurels waiting for me. Um, I've written a small screenplay, which is due to be filmed um, with a chap um, in Amsterdam called Jerome, a, a friend of mine called Jerome, and that's a historic period horror piece uh, explicitly dealing with postnatal trauma which is quite an interesting one um and i am um, no i can't tell you about that <laughs> there's, there's a few other there's a few other things in the, in the pipeline so yeah it's a busy year that's excellent i like that there's awesome. going to be so many different uh medias for that too to be in so and at some point i'm going to write a collaboration with this uh amazing writer called um laurel something high <laughs> tall house high castle i can't remember her name exactly so oh, I gonna, she's pretty bitchy i'm gonna i'm gonna pin her down and fill her up with gin and then basically coerce her into doing it so she has no choice <laughs> oh twist my arm that sounds terrible no actually that that would i i would love to do i would love to do that yeah i'm not joking <laughs> <laughs> good i hope you're not joking about the gen either because no I've got no, no, no. I've got a little bit. 
let you sober up before you write anything. But <laughs> <laughs> well, Rich, did you uh, have anything else? No, no. Only that I'm uh, I'm really excited for um, all the projects that you mentioned, especially the audio ones. I still have to check those out, but um, and that anthology. That sounds like a great idea. If you like if you like my stories and you want to hear more about the kind of universe of Girl on Fire, but you don't have the time to read necessarily, then I do recommend going to the No Sleep podcast website. Stick my name into the search bar. I think I've got about 17 stories up there now. They are like the world's best short story, scary people. <laughs> it just it is just world class entertainment. And it is like listening to a movie and they're brilliant and they're lovely people. So I definitely recommend just getting stuck into that if you've got if you need to do the dishes or fold pants like I do or anything like that (laughs) and you want to you want to engage there's so many cool writers on there there's so many cool stories there's um you know kind of cult classics like pen pal by Dathan Auerbach that's all been adapted by them butcher face like all the subreddit because it came from the original no sleep subreddit like all the all the classics that you've heard of they're good folk and it's um I just it it does come with an addiction warning if you, <laughs> you get very addicted very quickly but yeah i can recommend that awesome yeah i'll definitely check those out well thank you so much for coming on we're we're sorry that uh, shane was very sorry to miss it it's just sort of a scheduling issue between pacific you know mm-hmm. and uh, Gren- greenwich mean yeah <laughs> yeah i'm not i don't forgive him i'm afraid so. <laughs> he's gone to a cold black place in my heart now shane you've <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to fix that at some point we'll have to you just have to bring me back on so that i can berate him in person and um <laughs> yes yeah i think he'll agree to that readily so. <laughs> well thank you again very much for coming on we really appreciate it um thank you for and, having me it's been lovely yeah i'm glad we didn't have yeah, to keep you up until 4 a.m because that would no. be terrible <laughs> no, i'm used i'm used to it now i'm just more fun when i'm not quite so tired <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Have an excellent rest of your night and um, we will talk soon, I'm sure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Bye. Bye. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs>